When I was 17 years old, I owned a 69 Beetle, as I'm sure a lot of you did, or one of those years. And uh, there was a time, it was late at night, I was coming, we had a group of us uh, at a gravel pit, an old farm, and we were driving out of the gravel pit late at night, I was by myself, and you had to go through a shallow stream to get back to the road. And as soon as you clear that stream, you normally just punch it, you go as fast as that little Beetle can go. But it comes right to a perpendicular end at a barbed wire fence that you got to do a sharp right turn at. So I thought, this will be fun. It's late at night. I'm the only one in the car. I'm, on, I'm alone on the road. It's a gravel road. I'll go as fast as I can, hit the e-brake, and slide my way around. Great idea, great concept, except on that Beatles brake system, once they got wet, the e-brake didn't work. I forgot all about it. I pulled that thing on, doing probably 35 or 40, that was fast, and that thing went right through the barbed wire fence. Fence post put a hole right where my face was in the windshield. And the, thankfully, the wires held intact and brought it up over the rest of the car. Well, I brought, I brought the car home, and uh, about a week later, I was bored. My father had, my mom and dad had a bunch of people over to the house and a, a fellowship. I was outside. I had a quarter stick of dynamite, and I said, you know, it looks like it fit right in that hole of that windshield. I wonder what that would do. So I lit it and ran. And it exploded the entire front windshield out of that car straight up in the air to come pelting down on the roof of our house to which all my father's friends as well as my mom and dad came running out to see what had happened. It was not a good day in my life. Now, friends, we're going to bring that home to Genesis chapter 3-1. So if you've got your Bibles out, get them out to Genesis 3-1. And we're going to see what has happened to the image of God and man. Now, you all will agree with me, I'm sure, if you've been married. You will agree to this statement, I am positive. Honeymoon bubbles always pop. There are no exceptions. And we're not told how long Adam and Eve were married before this temptation came to them. But they woke that day, and friends, I am absolutely sure they never dreamed of what was about to happen. They never saw it coming. They were absolutely in love with each other. They were at perfect peace with God. They were at harmony with creation clearly knowing their places in the world, and all of a sudden, it all fractured into a million poorly reflective pieces of their former glory. What on earth happened? And why is it important to marriages today? Well, that fateful day introduced a self-orientation, a self-preoccupation, a self-love. It introduced that that day that has plagued every human being since, in every marriage today. It was, that, it was an event that still reaches out, it still affects our marriages, and it's the reason that husbands and wives often become two towers battling one another, warring against one another in their marriages. And it all started with a mysterious creature called a serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty, verse 1, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You see, it introduces a creature, a snake, a serpent, 
And it says that it was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now, that right there is a marriage. Or, I mean, that right there is a sermon. Sorry. <laughs> Did I tell you how tired I am? <clears throat> Mark, you're going to have to edit that one. A beast of the field infers that this is a creature that is coming from outside the garden. And snakes were not in themselves evil, although my dad hated snakes. Every snake he ever saw on our property, he ruthlessly went to kill it because it just reminded him of Satan. He hated snakes, but snakes in themselves were created by God and they were declared good. But this particular snake is possessed by Satan. And this possessed snake comes to deceive Eve. Now, friends, listen, we're not really given an exhaustive bio on who Satan is in the Bible. We're getting, given a lot more information and in narrative works and what he does and prophetical works as to where he's been and where he's going but we're not really given a lot of information to be able to create a compilation. This is Satan. Here's how you know who he is. We're just not given that, but we're given enough to begin getting a framework of who he is because Revelation 12, 9 says this, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So now we're told that this possessed snake is influenced, is possessed, is controlled by none other than the deceiver of the world, the devil. But Isaiah 14 will tell us, or actually Ezekiel 28 says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So Satan is a created being. And then you take that with Isaiah 14 and it tells us what that unrighteousness that was found in him was. And it's captured in this little two-word phrase, I will. What do I mean? Well, if you read verses 13 through 14 of Isaiah 14, you'll keep reading five times, I think it is, this phrase, I will. You see, Satan had the most heinous I willness toward himself than any creature ever has. It's a self-love, a self-preoccupation. And he says this, I will make myself like the most high. Now, friends, whenever God reveals one of his names, like most high is, the Bible will often, almost always, tell you what the attribute is in the revelation of that name. Now, if you go to Genesis 14, verse 19, you'll see that title for God again, Most High God. And what you'll see is that the attribute is this. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. You see, Satan wanted to become like the Most High, possessing, controlling, ruling all of creation, heaven and earth. He didn't want to share the throne with God. He wanted God off the throne, and he wanted to become its sole ruler. So God takes this rebellious angel. By the way, did you know that most theologians will agree that the position that Satan occupied in heaven was none other than the worship director whose job it was to take all of the worship of creation and direct it solely to God. 
That's what the worship director's job is. And like anybody in worship or anybody in full-time ministry, sometimes there could creep into our hearts this little thing that says, why does God have to get all the glory? Maybe I can sip at the well of his glory. And Satan took a sip and took a drink until he was consummated with a love for himself that said, I want to be the possessor of heaven and earth. So God casts him to the earth, the very place that he will never ever be able to possess so that he walks to and fro throughout the earth. And the serpent, the Bible says in verse 1, was more crafty than any other. Now we attach usually some negative moral evil intent to that word. That word can be either good as in intelligent or cunning or it could be evil. And in this case, it's evil. Satan hates humanity precisely for two reasons. You ready? I'm going to tell you two reasons that Satan hates all of us and hates the church even more. First of all, he hates us because we are loved by God. Did you know that the church is God's treasured possession? There is that word again, possession. We belong to God and Satan wants us. But unlike God who wants to lead us to freedom and to life eternal, Satan wants to lead us to dominion and to slavery under his hand. He wants to possess us. Why? Because we're God's treasured possession. But let me tell you one other reason, and it has direct bearing on what we're going to study this morning, why Satan hates us. It's because you and I are made and created in the image of God, and Satan hates God more than anything. And when he sees us, whether you're a Christian or not, he sees in you, though it's shattered, though it's distorted, to varying degrees, he still sees in you an image of God and it brings out his hatred. The target of Satan, friends, is simply this. It's the image of God in humanity and his objective is to ruin it and to spoil it in every relational level he can, no relationship more so than marriage. And if he's successful... He'll completely disrupt and he'll completely fracture what it means to be created in the image of God. Let me give you an example. In the historical book called That Day Alone, Nazi troops captured a rabbi. And they got that rabbi in the midst of their circle and they made him strip down to nothing and asked him to take, commanded him rather, I can't do it, commanding him to take his wedding ring off of his finger. Completely naked, before this group of men, they begin taunting him and beating him with a leather strap. True story. And then they said to the rabbi, Rabbi Werner, we burned down your synagogue, so you have no place to preach the sermon that you've been preparing, so we want you to preach it to us. And mocking him and taunting him, they tell him to begin his sermon. After they shaved half of his beard, which is humiliating to a Jewish man. The rabbi asks for his hat because that's customarily how he would preach. And standing there with his hat on his head, shivering in the cold, utterly naked, he begins the text 
that he was to use for that coming sermon, which begins with this God created man in his image and likeness. God created us to image him. Sin has been the quarter stick of dynamite that has blown it into a distorted, fractured reflection. How did sin affect the image of God? How do you, there's lots of ways to answer that. Theologians have come up with so many spectacular ways to answer that question. But how do you answer that question if you just simply look at the text in Genesis? Well, that's what we're going to do this morning, and we're going to finish it next week. Three ways this morning that sin has affected the image of God in us and profoundly impacted marriage. Number one, it's affected the image of God in marriage roles. Marriage roles. You see, Satan first appeared in the Bible in the form of a serpent, and notice who he spoke to. Did you ever notice that he only spoke to Eve? The text says he said to the woman. You'll never hear Satan speak to Adam in Genesis 3. It's not in there. Is it because she's weaker? Is it because she's more emotional than Adam and more susceptible to Satan? Was it because she was the only one around at that time? It's none of those reasons. I'm going to give you the reason this morning. I believe why Satan came and spoke only to Eve in that temptation. You see, while men and women both image God equally, and men and women are both created absolutely equal in personhood and worth and in honor, Friends, we have different roles in marriage. That is undeniably the scripture's truth. And as we saw last week, it's Adam and every husband down the generational lines that have received God's command to leave your parents and to hold fast to your wife, shifting your greatest priority to your wife for the rest of your covenantal marriage. It's the man that's supposed to initiate and take the lead in that. He's supposed to lead his wife in strength, love, and grace. And friends, she is supposed to be responding and willing, gracious submission as his helpmate. But how do you like that word submission? You know how I feel when I speak on submission for ladies? Years ago, I was mountain biking at Jacobsburg Park, and I didn't realize it was hunting season. And the trail took me right at the base of a tree, up in the tree, and a stand was a hunter in blaze orange. I don't think he was happy to see me, because I don't think deer follow mountain bikers. I think they go the other way, and as I was pedaling away from that tree, I could swear I could feel his crosshairs on my back. I feel that sometimes when I preach on this topic. I don't know if it's me imagining it or if it's some of you horribly sinful women in this church. <laughs> Whatever. I think you just put them on me now, didn't you? What's it mean, submission? Because our society has completely distorted that. Submission is not does not mean voicelessness. It does not mean powerlessness. And it doesn't mean worthlessness. 
Submission is a position of strength and influence. In fact, my wife always reminds me that, honey, you are the head of our home. But remember, I'm the neck that turns the head. And that's very, very accurate to the power of submission. It's an influential, not a worthless position. Yet the Bible lifts up both biblical leadership and godly glad submission as ways that marriages image God. Now, you heard that, right? Men, when you lead your wives with courage, grace, and love, and ladies, when you respond with joyful, glad submission, you are imaging God. Let me prove it. In the Trinity, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are absolutely equal in essence, but they each have different roles. Now, friends, God has always been the Father. Jesus has always for all eternity been the Son. And the Spirit is always perpetually and always will be the helper. None of those roles began at creation or the fall of man. They've always been existing in these roles. For instance... In creation, the Father initiated, the Son carried it out by His Word, and the Spirit, the Bible says, hovered over the waters. In redemption, the Father sent the Son into the world. The Son was obedient to the Father, and He died for our sins, and the Holy Spirit came to equip and empower the church. Listen, friends, the Father did not die for our sins. The Son was not poured out on the day of Pentecost. So while completely equal in deity, glory, and importance, each of the triune persons in the Godhead have a distinct role and authority. The same is true in marriage. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven three. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. Men, listen, in marriage, you do not have boundless authority. You have a head over you. And that is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Gracious, loving, courageous leadership and willing, glad submission images God. And when husbands lovingly lead and wives gladly follow from a position of strength, here's what happens. You ready? You better hold on, because this is what's happening. Satan sees the triune God in your marriage, and he hates and despises you. And he will do everything he can to disrupt and to fracture your covenant. And so the serpent, possessed by Satan, comes to Eve and whispers to her ear, not Adam's, because if he can lead her into sin, listen, and then she can lead her husband into sin, it will have completely reversed the roles that God had created for them. You see, Satan wanted way more than just for us to all fall into sin. He wanted us to fall into sin through the reversal of God's order. That's how you destroy the image of God. That's how you fracture it. Man, do you know where Adam was when Satan began to draw Eve away towards sin, are you aware of what the Bible says in verse 6? She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. 
Men, when we do not lead graciously and courageously, we allow our marriages to be susceptible to the enemies that all Christians have. And here's our three enemies, Satan, the world, and the flesh. Adam was silent. And rather than, rather than breaking into Eve's descent into deception to rescue her, he did nothing, forfeiting his God-given place of leadership. And Satan succeeded in destroying the roles that he imaged God. There's a second way that sin has disrupted the image of God in us, and it's number two, the image of God that's seen in dominion. What do I mean by that? Well, can you flip back or read up on the screen to chapter 1, verse 26? Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, even that snake. But I want you to see the underlining in that. Do you see the word over that occurs five times? See, men and women, that's a unisex term when it says men. Let us make man means men and women. Men and women were both given the job of ruling over the earth. And in ruling over the earth, men and lady, men and women, it preserves in us that we're created distinct from the rest of creation. See, sin would destroy the sure dominion of men and women over creation. And especially seen when Adam then, after the curse, begins to work the ground and the ground rises up against them with thorns and thistles. But there's another point that I've got to bring out that we can notice with Satan's attack on Eve and how it disrupts, listen, not our rulership over earth, but God's rulership over us. You know what's interesting? I, I found this so fascinating when I studied this. In fact, open your Bibles and let's take a little tour. Chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning, God... The name of God is Elohim, the triune creator God. Verse 3, and God said Elohim. Whenever you see God in Genesis 1 through 4, you're, you're seeing the, the name for God, Elohim. Look at chapter 2, now that God's created the earth and created mankind. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God. And you see that repeated, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. Verse 18, then the Lord God. You know what's happening here is that the writer now has attached two names for God. It's now Yahweh, Lord, Elohim, God. Yahweh meaning the covenantal, loving, faithful, powerful God to uphold his promises matched up with Elohim, the triune creator God. Now that's really interesting. Especially when you go to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than other, any other beast of the field that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And then the serpent speaks and he drops Yahweh and retains 
Elohim. You know what Satan's doing? He's dropping for Eve the truth and the fact that God is faithful, good, loving, and powerful. And retaining that, yes, he created all things and he exists to love himself in the Trinity. Now you know why he's crafty. And you know what happens with Eve as she get, begins to converse with the snake? Look what happens. And the woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but Elohim. See, she drops Yahweh. And all of a sudden, a crack appears in the theology of Eve. And that crack is, well, maybe God really isn't Yahweh, covenantal, faithful, good, powerful to uphold his promises. Maybe God is holding out on us. I mean, why would he not let us eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if he's not holding out on us? Why is he told us not to eat from this tree? And that's a very good question. Why did God say you can't eat from that tree? Well, you know what? James Montgomery Boyce has done an excellent job of answering that. He says this. One important reason is that so long as that one tree stands in the garden as a symbol of my creaturehood, so long as it is there to remind me that I am not God, and that I am not perfectly autonomous, perfectly free within myself, so long as it is, it is there, I hate it. So I will eat of it and die, goes Eve's thinking. You see, the forbidden tree served to remind them forever that they are the creature. He is the creator. He is God. They aren't. They will always be dependent on him. The taking of that forbidden fruit was at that very moment of throwing off of the shackles of being ruled by God. And it was the rebellious reach to pluck a fruit that they thought would enable them to be equal to God, the very same motivation of Satan. And you see this in marriage in countless ways, more of which we're going to look at next week, but you don't like the way your spouse is? Then reach for the fruit of threatening, manipulating, passive-aggressive criticism and force that person to change into your image. Now, friends, if you're married and you're thinking, then you'll know that you reach for the fruit constantly. And you forget that you're meant to be the creature. I'm meant to be the creature. God's meant to be the creator. God can change my spouse without me taking the throne to demand it. But there's one more way this morning that we're going to see that sin has corrupted the image of God and it's in the area of communication. Friends, it was March 1990. It was in Cancun, Mexico. And Denise and I had just gotten married days before we went there on our honeymoon. 
And while it was beautiful outside, the sandy beach was glistening, the sunlight inside our hotel room, a storm was brewing. See, earlier that day, we were almost finished with our honeymoon, and we were talking about what we would do for lunch, and me being frugal, which is another word nicely to say cheap, thought thought that maybe we could use up our peanut butter and jelly and soft white bread. She didn't like that idea. She didn't want soft white bread with peanut butter and jelly. She wanted me to take her out to lunch. But I wanted to spend time on the beach and in the ocean and doing things. And all of a sudden, two hearts were in collision. One was more insensitive than the other. And I'll leave that to your own guesswork. I don't think it's going to be a hard one. And all of a sudden, this great honeymoon that we're on, begins to frizzle because of terrible, horrible communication that's coming from hearts that are selfish. How does sin affect the image of God in our communication? You know, when we come to chapter 1, verse 28 in Genesis, we see that God created men and women, and the scripture says, now everybody, if you haven't gone there, look at verse 28. This is so cool. We've got to learn to speak like this. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them. And then it says, and God said to them. Now, I want you to see the correlation. God blessed them, meaning that he bestowed on them his favor and his love. And then he spoke to them out of that favor. And out of that blessing, what he spoke into men and women was their purpose and their identity. Here's what he said. Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. And then all of a sudden we get to see Adam. Who images reflects this beautiful form of communication as he comes out of his sleep. Surgically induced. To see this. Absolutely beautiful woman. But even before that, we saw Adam imaging God because God brought all the animals to Adam. And what did Adam do? He, he spoke into each animal their identity, who they were for all of history. And when he sees that woman that God had fashioned from his own rib, Adam's own rib, He speaks now to her. And you know what he calls her? He's not going to give her a a proper name for another chapter. But he calls her woman here. And you know what woman is in the Hebrew? In the Hebrew, the word is Isha. You know what man is in the Hebrew? It's Ish. See, Adam calls her by a name that is inextricably woven with him. Literally, his name is bound up within her name. And he recognized their similarity. He anticipated their deepest intimacy because the root meaning of woman really means soft man. You see, Adam speaks into her life Her identity, she is to be a soft man, inextricably woven in intimacy and familiarity and similarity with him. Then all of a sudden, sin 
comes into the picture. And communication unalterably changes for the rest of history. And it's why Proverbs 18.21 can now say death and life are in the power of the tongue. And you get to Genesis 3, verse 11, and God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. God, it's not my fault. It's her fault. And so now instead of speaking out of a position of blessing and speaking worth and value into his wife, he's stripping her of worth and value so that he can pile it on himself. And then we see the picture phase to Eve and the Lord God shifts to her and he says, what is this that you have done? And she says, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. She is now shifting responsibility. No longer is she able with the man to speak worth into the creation. She now robs creation of their worth in order to gain it for herself. See, where communication, friends, was used before for blessing, that's how we image God. God blessed the man, the man blessed the woman. Now it's used for selfish exaltation. Both Adam and Eve shifted away the blame, trying in vain to justify their sin. Friends, listen, husbands and wives, listen. Do we use our words, our communication, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, to build up the other to speak worth and beauty into the hearts of the other person? Or are we trapped in patterns of criticism and disappointment? Man, you've got to speak as I do worth and beauty and grace into the heart of our hearts of our wives. And ladies, do your mouths speak of the highest respect that you have for your very own husband? Does he hear that from you? And when we do that, we image God beautifully because that's what he created us to do. And when we don't do that, we image the, the effects that sin has had in marriage. I'm telling you, we've got one more next week and it's the hardest. I dare you to come back next week. It's not going to be easy. And we're going to see it has direct correlation in marriage. And then we're going to see the curses that God himself gave to the men and the women. And then we're going to see what Christ himself can do to redeem our tongues, redeem our marriages, redeem the image of God in us so that when Satan sees us, he sees an accurate portrayal of who God is within the, own, within the Trinity. As the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit. Well, you'll notice on your insert, your bulletin, on the outline, that there's an application. I think I could be accurate in saying this, that if you will take these applications and apply them, and actually do them, you're going to see growth in your marriage. I've had person after person, couple after couple, tell me about how they're doing these applications and how God is changing their marriage through it. 
I encourage you, take this home, make a date night, and talk to one another lovingly, deeply, and intimately. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for all that you've showed us. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that we could be wiser now to the attacks of our enemies, Satan, the world, and our flesh, and how it wants to destroy and disrupt and fracture your image in us. Lord, now we're wiser to know that when we love each other in our marriages, we are going to be targets, but by your grace, we can uphold our covenants and we can speak lovingly. We can exercise these roles that image the Father, Son, and Spirit. We can exercise our dominion over creation. We are still created above the creation. And we can exercise godly, redemptive communication as we speak value and worth and grace and beauty into the hearts of our spouses. Lord, help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.